Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. We've got a great lineup today. We're going to be bringing you an interview with Carolyn Cohegan, who wrote The Lost Children and Time Zero, among other titles. Our short story today will be Ghost Protocol by Angie Capozello, and it first appeared in World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, and I believe that was 2012. So, uh, no, actually that was 2014, sorry about that. So it'll be terrific to bring you that. As well, I've got a review for you of the new book out by Stormy Daniels, uh, Stephanie Clifford, of course, titled Full Disclosure. I listened to the Audible book a couple of weeks ago, and I have to tell you, I really enjoyed it. My review would be, if you're looking for a great literary work, this is not your piece. Having said that, it is well written. It struck me as a very honest account of a life more than anything. Um, Quite raw, unapologetic, not looking for sympathy, just this is who I am and how I got where I am, um, that sort of a memoir. I was compelled by it. Uh, I had to listen right through. So for whatever that's worth, the title is Full Disclosure by Stormy Daniels, and um, I found it really interesting. Of course, there was a little bit of Trump nonsense in it. How could there not be? That's what... um, That's what triggered her meteoric rise to fame and glory was her uh, affair with Trump. However, the book is not about Donald Trump. It is about Stormy Daniels, uh, Stephanie Clifford, and how she came to be who she is. So I think it was well uh, well worth listening to on the Audible version, and I think you'd also enjoy the book. It was, again, well written, well told, and it had more than anything else a pervasive sense of honesty about it. We've had another really wild week in the news, of course. Um, I can't touch on everything, but as you know, Brett Kavanaugh has been uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court and is now Justice Kavanaugh, despite allegations that uh, seemed quite credible to this listener of sexual misconduct and abuse. You know, that's the way life is sometimes, I suppose. I know that women are not prepared to be silent at this point. I think I've never seen so much anger come from the ranks of women. So we'll see where that takes us. Let's hope it leads someplace better. On top of that, we lost a journalist, a, a journalist for the Washington Post, no less, who had gone to the Saudi consulate in Turkey, in Istanbul, and was there attacked by who we believe are representatives of Saudi Arabian Crown Prince. 
and the reports lead us to believe that he was brutally tortured and murdered and cut up into pieces and carried out of the embassy. We don't at this point firmly know any of this, but the reports tell us that um, he knew something was going to be wrong. He made his um, he made his uh, life partner wait outside the embassy. He gave her his phone, um, presumably so it wouldn't be confiscated. And he turned on his Apple Watch and apparently recorded the entire incident. So this is a pretty, pretty severe incident of abuse against journalists. Um, not totally surprising in these times with the rhetoric that we've been hearing. Certainly very frightening, very frightening. So that's the, sort of a recap of the last week's news very briefly. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Carolyn Cohegan, who is our interview today. Carolyn is the author of The Lost Children, uh, Simon and & Schuster, and um, as well as Time Zero, which is a series. She began her writing career as a stand-up comic, performing in comedy clubs all over the world, including New York, Chicago, London, and Amsterdam. After studying physical theater at L'École Internationale de Théâtre Jacques Lecoque in Paris, she began to write and perform one-woman shows, traveling to theater festivals from Edinburgh to Adelaide. In Los Angeles, Carolyn wrote and directed short films, worked for Slam Dance and the L.A. Film Festival, and was a red carpet host for the Independent Spirits Award. Her first novel, The Lost Children, was published by Simon & Schuster in 2010 and became part of the Scholastic Book Club in 2011 and was nominated for a Massachusetts Children's Book Award in 2014. In the fall of 2013, Carolyn traveled to Rwanda as an arts envoy working for the U.S. State Department. She taught a vast array of writing workshops, including teaching critical analysis, using the three-act structure in screenwriting, and how to use storytelling in the classroom. She has a BA in art history from Barnard and an MA in writing from USC. Carolyn has recently returned to her hometown of Austin, where she founded Girls with Pens, a creative writing organization for girls aged 9 to 17. So, without further ado, I want to introduce you to Carolyn Cohegan, today's guest on Dead to Rights, the podcast. Hello. Good morning, Carolyn. This is Carolyn Cohegan, and welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. So, I understand you're in your studio writing away in Austin, Texas, and the weather there is a little gray. Is that right? Yes, for pens, I'm writing away on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Imagine that as a writer, right? <laughs> well, I, I have to tell you something that is sure to cheer you up. I looked out my window this morning, and there's about a half a foot of snow out there. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that actually does make me feel better about our spring. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um there's a couple of things I discovered in my research uh, about you that are pretty interesting. Um, one is that you made the Scholastics book list. I think that was 2011. Um, what, what was the title of that book again? 
The Lost Children. The Lost Children. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that book and, and what it was like having it included in the Scholastics listing? Yeah, so that book came out in 2010. Uh, it's a middle reader fantasy, so for kids 8 to 12. And it's my first novel. And uh, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and it actually started off as a film treatment because <laughs> I was uh, writing screenplays at the time. So I had no idea it was going to be a novel, um, but a treatment, you know, was sort of like a, a synopsis of a right. screenplay. You know, it's written in prose, and uh, I just decided I was going to attack the screenplay in a different way this time and, and started in prose, and I just found that I kept going and going and going, and I was really preferring it. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it turned into this novel and it's, um, it's a dark fairy tale mm-hmm. and I didn't know I was, I didn't know I was writing for children. Um, and it's very absurd. It's sort of Roald Dahl-esque. Uh, it's got sort of a little lion, the witch in the wardrobe in there. It's about a girl who lives in the middle of nowhere with her cruel father. And, um, she... One day she's out in the garden and this little boy shows up from, you know, nowhere. She has no idea where he came from and he doesn't speak. And she sort of takes care of him for the afternoon and then he disappears again. Mm-hmm. And she she decides that maybe he came from her shed, which she's very afraid of. So she goes into the shed to look for him and ends up sort of falling into this, um, this new world. And um, once she's there, she's just trying to get home again. Mm, so, so kind of through the looking glass too, eh? Yeah, exactly. So that's what that, that book is about. And um, that was through Simon and & Schuster. And um, when, uh, when you're with a, a traditional publisher like that, from the beginning, they're sort of hoping that you have a, a shot at Scholastic. So they edit with that in mind, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, they, and they submit to Scholastic. And... Um, and so it's, you know, it's really thrilling and exciting, you know, to know that, um, you know, that, that kids are getting that magazine and, oh, and that your book yeah. is in there. A yeah. very good friend of yeah, mine is, a, really is an author who, yeah, a very good friend of mine is an author who'd been on the Scholastics list a couple of times. And so, um, so that's always kind of stayed with me and, and I know how thrilling that was for her. So it must be a great thrill. Now, the other thing that I really wanted to ask you about this morning is uh, your time in Rwanda. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What were you doing there? When did you go there? Um, what was the purpose, so, and how did it all shake out? Uh, I went there in 2013, and um, the impetus was actually just that I, I had an old friend who worked for the State Department, and she was stationed in Kigali, and she let me know. She said, you know, that they have um, a lot of State Department grants going on. Uh, and this is this is interesting for your readers. I mean, if anyone wants to do this sort of thing, um, and the main reason is because they officially switched the language there from French to English not so long ago. Okay. So they're very interested in having people come over to teach English, to teach mm-hmm. writing, um, and any kind of literature. So she said, you know, you should really apply for one of these grants, um, and I did, and I got it, and it was. Uh, and I thought, well, I, I don't know exactly what they're going to have me do. But what they did was they went through my resume, and anything I had ever done, they had me teach. So uh, I went over there, and they had me teach um, 
writing for the classroom. Uh, I had taught um, critical analysis at mm-hmm. USC as part of my fellowship when I was doing my master's. So they had me teach, um, not teach critical analysis, but how to teach critical analysis mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to college teachers, to high school teachers. I taught uh, screenplay writing. I taught a theater class. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I'm telling you, I taught everything. It really was anything I had ever been involved with in my life. They were like, let's do that. So it was very satisfying. It was really like, okay, let's let's squeeze every last bit of knowledge out of everything I've ever done. It must um, have been to take was, to take a skill set like that and to transport it into some place um, I'm presuming you'd never been before, and that is really quite mm-hmm, an exotic mm-hmm. setting. And and to be able to share that skill set with people who really so need it, um, it must have been mm-hmm, very satisfying. Exactly. Now, how long were you there? Yeah, it was wonderful. Well, you're not going to believe it. I did all of that in a week. Oh. They would have <laughs> me teach uh, in the morning, and then I would kind of do like a work lunch, which would mean like you know meeting with people and chatting, and then I would do another workshop in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you really were, you were teaching, you were teaching teachers, is that right? Yes, most of the time, yes. Okay, okay, yeah, so it was really very at the instructional level, that, that's terrific, that's a fantastic thing to have done. Now, how did that segue into novels like, um, oh my goodness, I've just, I've just lost it from my mind, here we go, I'm going to find it. That's okay, Time Zero, Time Zero. Time Zero, how does that segue into novels like Time Zero? I was actually already writing Time Zero when I went there. Um, Time Zero, uh, my goodness, I think I I began it in 2010, um, and it it didn't come out until 2016. Um, It took me a a long time to write because the the research took a really long time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, you know, it's about a girl, a 15-year-old girl living in a Manhattan that's been taken over by fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. And although the religion is fictional, all the rules are real. And so I took um, rules from extremist religions all over the world, including the United States. So I spent a long time reading about fundamentalism mm-hmm. and, um, you know, really learning about various religions. And so, you know, the first, like The Lost Children, is pure fantasy. <laughs> so yeah, there wasn't really yeah. any research involved. Also, um, I went back and got my master's during that time uh, in 2013. So you can imagine that also slowed down the the novel process. I would think, um, I would think. But, you know, I've got to ask you something at this point, um, because they're quite different styles of writing between The Lost Children and Time Zero. And uh, in general, between fantasy writing and research-driven writing, and I know this because, you know, having done both... um, did you become a full-fledged research addict? Oh, that's a good question. I did really enjoy it. Um, yeah. I was absolutely fascinated. And I think, I mean, I think for most of us, we don't end up researching something unless it's something we're uh, interested in in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would hope, I would hope not. Um, but uh, I, I've always been interested in um, fundamentalism and um, and also, frankly, cults. You know, like um, yeah. sometimes sometimes are really a, a fine line. Um, and so for me, a lot of the research was was really fascinating. And 
And what I was interested in specifically was how extremist religions uh, are disproportionately negative for girls. Right. Right. That's something that uh, is so obvious, and yet, you know, we don't necessarily name it as the number one flaw in extremist thinking or extremist religions, and yet it really Mm -hmm. is kind of the number one flaw, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that it, it really, um, they really, yeah, keep keep girls down when it comes to either um, keeping them from an education, keeping them from real health care, um, or just having them marry very, very early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting to me and sort of finding those parallels. So um, when I went to Rwanda, it, it was interesting to get to meet with some organizations that were um, specifically set up for girls. Mm-hmm. Um, that was fantastic. And that led me, when I when I moved back to Austin, my hometown, um, to found my organization here called Girls with Pens. Which I did see that, and I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Tell, us, tell us about Girls with Pens, because honestly, you know, I'm going to make a statement here that... We always hear, well, these are women's issues, and they're always like a sideline. Women's issues are always a sideline to every discussion about human rights and human values, and yet women and girls are 52% of the world population. I am sick to death of them being sidelined as women's issues. Tell us about Girls with Pins, what your aims are, and how it's coming along. Well, I started it... Um, in 2014, and as I said, very uh, inspired by my work in Rwanda, and I just really wanted to work with adolescent girls, and that also came out of all the research I've been doing with Time Zero. Uh, So I decided to start this organization in Austin um, specifically to help girls when they're kind of in that, you know, uncomfortable prickly age, um, which is, you know, kind of 8 to 14, um, to help them find and or kind of retain their voices, right? Because they're so confident, and then all these studies have shown, you know, that once they hit adolescence, that they stop raising their hands, Mm -hmm. um, and that they lose, they lose their confidence. And I just think that writing is so powerful because... Popularity doesn't help you be a good writer. No, you know there's there's you know that you, you put girls in a room and you say you know write a story. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. It doesn't matter how you look. You know. And in fact, um, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Sometimes a lack of popularity can really enhance our work as absolutely. artists, as writers. Absolutely. And I talked with several women that I know, women that I went to middle school with, and we talked about how incredible it would have been if someone had come to our school and said, you know, we're going to write and I want you to be weird, you know, I want you to be out there and, um, you know, go crazy when you write something, Mm -hmm. you know, just really be out there and how liberating that would have been. Oh my God, yeah. Oh my God. You know, and so I just thought, I just want to reach, you know, the quiet girl in the corner who's got so much going on in her head that's fabulous. Um, but may not be getting the outlet for that. Yeah, yeah. Because we are taught to be the cautious ones. We are taught to be the ones that won't take a risk. Um, I can tell you as a 58-year-old writer, my 
my pet dream is to write the ultimate chaos novel. Um, and I'm not kidding. This is a, I, I've been thinking about this for the last few years. I would love to just write the uh, Quentin Tarantino, maybe even more so, <laughs> you know, just the ultimate <laughs> chaos novel, just to see what it's like to be able to think that way and bust through all that training, you know. Um, I think that would be brilliant. So, yes, if you can get girls young enough, and tell them it's okay to explore your imagination to its fullest. How wonderful is that? Well, I think what's fascinating is one of their favorite exercises every single time is to tell them to create a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I write them, uh, sorry, I read aloud this um, this piece, and it's from a witch's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um about, you know, like a little girl who, uh, you know, ignores all these warning signs and comes to the witch's house, and the witch turns her into a log uh-huh, <laughs> and uh-huh. a fire with her. And it's great. And I say, like, okay, so now, now you're going to create an original villain, and, you know, the only requirement is you have to use the phrase, beware children. And they love it. Mm-hmm. They love it. And it's great. Like, they're just so empowered to become, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of dark and evil and powerful you know just for this little poem or whatever they get really into it and I think that's so interesting you know at the age of eight or nine or ten or whatever it is um to watch them you know write from a different perspective is always a great thing right because yes yes even if they're doing a little creative writing in school it's usually from their own perspective or a character that's just like them yes because we, much is made about um the fact that girls are not and have not historically been encouraged into the sciences and into the maths. And um, mm-hmm. I know that my other my other passion when I was young was mathematics. And uh, it's gone by the wayside because we can only be one person really in this life. But um, it's I think it's a, a truism that girls are also not encouraged fully in the arts. Um, we may be guided into the arts, but we're guided with an agenda in mind. And that agenda is not necessarily artistic freedom. And don't you think, though, I mean, so you've just said this thing of, you know, you can only be one person. Don't you think that's what novel writing is? It's, it allows you to be more than one person. Exactly. It allows, it allows you to be every character in the book. It sure does, yes. It allows you to explore all that and to think, what would happen? In your experience, in your own experience, what would happen if X, Y, and Z factors were in play? Mm-hmm. You know, and now. So I think that that's partly why, you know, for me to write this book is, is a way, time, something like Time Zero, is to really say, well, what would happen if, if I lived in a society, you know, where I didn't have any freedom and I had to, you know, obey all of these rules? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's an absolutely yeah. fascinating premise. Now, um, I, I hope I'm right about this. If not, I'll edit it out. I think you've got another book, don't you? I just finished um, the sequel, so it's a trilogy. Mm hmm. And um, the sequel just came out, Time Next. That's and what I thought, yes. I, yeah, and I started the third and last one only yesterday. Okay, so tell me the second title again. It's Time Next, is it? Yeah. Okay, Time good, Next. good. I wanted to make sure that was clear for listeners. So Time Zero has been available already since 2016. Time Next mm-hmm. is now out. Is it available for pre-order or is, or is it uh, actually live? It is out, out, it's live. It's out, out, exactly. Okay, and do you know the title of the third, or is there only a working title at this point? The working title right now is Time's Up. Time's Up, I love that! 
Okay, very good. That was me slapping my thigh in case you heard this extraneous noise. I absolutely love that. Time's up. How timely. I mean, honestly, Carolyn, that is perfect. Thank you. And this is not something that you... The thing that's really brilliant about this, people, is this is not something that you could have foreseen to take as a title because this movement only started within the last few months and you'd already had two books, Time Zero and Time Next. Time's Up is absolutely brilliantly perfect. Thank you. And now, with that having been said, you've made me want to read all three. So (laughs) I hope every girl and woman and every man who wants to understand what we live with as females will please get these books and just have yourself a good, fun read. I I want you to give us a little teaser about Times Next because, again, I, I love the brilliancy of your title. So just give us a little teaser, if you can, of the work that's coming. Oh, goodness, for Time's Up? Yes, time's up, yes. Um, well, I don't want to say too much because it's it's a bit of a plot, it's a bit of a spoiler um, okay. for how time next ends. If, if, I, if I say too much about time next. Okay, up. that's all right. But I won't I won't press you on it then. Uh, I'll just I, let it... I, uh... I feel like, as I said, I still think in terms of three-act structure. So it's the third act. I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm trying to wrap everything up and um, wrap up all of my um, threads, all my storylines, and of course, have something that's really satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I think um, what's really fascinating for me about teaching and teaching these girls is they are so savvy as readers, and they know what's cliche. Mm-hmm. I mean, they read most of them or a lot of my students read so much and they will wrap up like I'm trying they'll say like oh I know what this is gonna be oh, okay she's gonna be in some like weird society where the government oppresses her and she's gonna have a special power or something that makes her special mm-hmm. and then there's gonna be a guy and then there's gonna be another guy and she's gonna have to choose between them and then she's gonna do something that overthrows that government and changes everything mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, the oh female, the female, like, the female version of Harry Potter, which I love Harry Potter, and I'm never going to put down J.K. Rowling's. I mean, I absolutely love the series, and I'm not even a fan of YA, but I loved Harry Potter and I loved The Hunger Games. But um, in in Harry Potter, you what you've got is the quintessential young bullied youth. A young man who's living under the stairs and uh, has absolutely no status in life and has nothing to hold dear but his grievances, really, but he's special. And um, and I say that with no derision because I loved every single book in the series passionately. I read every one of them start to finish, plus I dragged my family out to every movie. But it's a formula. It's it's a character formula. I wouldn't say it was a character story, a formula story. She wrote it brilliantly, but the character was well, I mean, someone are, we know, you know very well. There's you know the hero's journey, you know Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, and and the mythic structure is thousands of years old, and so yeah, there's a there's a formula that we all know, mm-hmm. and there are formulas that are happening in films and books over and over again yeah and you know every tragedy is greek really (laughs) we were watching a greek tragedy with the kids the other day 
and you couldn't believe how well it held up, you know? Oh, it's incredible. And I feel like well, when it's done really well, we don't really notice it, right? We don't notice that we've seen it before. Yes. Um, but what made me laugh about these girls or that sort of little summary was so like, oh my God, that's hilarious, that in a lot of way, a fiction, that that particular story, especially in like dystopian, um, it has been told, you know, so many times um, in the same way mm-hmm. that they are really savvy and they know it. Do you know yes. what I mean? So you're really like, okay, well, you know, whatever I'm doing, I got to make sure that it's, you know, it's not cliche, it's not obvious, but it's not this like, oh, okay, you know, my female protagonist is going to triumph over everybody um, because, of course, she's 15 and my hero does not have superpowers in any way. Yes. You know? so, <laughs> and what do we do uh, without those superpowers? My I God, what next? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, you know, as much as I kind of have it outlined in my head, I, I also, uh, it's really important to me that things seem viable, um, and real, or else, you know, how satisfying can it be? Yes, yes. Well, Carolyn, I really want to thank you for coming on Dead to Rights. You've given us an awful lot. And listeners, please go out and look for the books by Carolyn Cohagen. Um, Time Zero, Time Next, and Coming Soon, Time's Up. And they're terrific books. And um, you can find Carolyn Cohagen online. What's your website address, Carolyn? Well, uh, I've got timezerobook.com, which mm-hmm. is all about that series. Um, and then I also just have carolyncohagan.com. Okay. Okay. So that's two great ways you can find Carolyn listeners. Uh, stay on the line with me for a second, Carolyn, because I'm going to chat with you for a sec after I turn the sound off here. One sec. Our thanks go out to Carolyn Cohegan for the fantastic interview today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. And now we're going to bring you a terrific short story by Angie Capozello. She's been fascinated by ghosts ever since she was a child, having spent weekends at her grandparents' haunted hunting lodge. She's been researching the myths and science around ghosts ever since, and will write about them in any genre she can get away with. She also has a green thumb, likes blacksmithing, archery, and firmly believes one can never have too many books. She currently lives in Pennsylvania in a very old house. Ghost Protocol by Angie Capazello. Editor's Note Sparkling with originality, this espionage caper by Angie Capazello will grab your imagination and leave you checking your watch for ghosts. Purgatory, thought Virgil, is a designated smoking area outside an office building. All of the unclean souls gathered, reeking of nicotine, huddled together in a feeble attempt to ward off the elements. They stood there every day, unable to pass through the steel and glass gates until their penance in the form of a tiny white stick was paid out in a cloud of smoke. Virgil, in his disguise as Algernon P. Stoblensky, was an outcast among the damned. He slouched up to the entrance, took a spot to the left of the doors, and tapped a cigarette out of its pack. The real Algernon was sleeping off the mickey Virgil had paid a hooker to drop into the man's beer the night before. With any luck, he wouldn't make an appearance until long after Virgil was gone. 
A few of the other smokers cast wary glances in his direction. Virgil used his telepathy to broadcast a mild suggestion that they were seeing Algy sucking down his first cigarette of the day. A slight touch of his empathetic talent enhanced their natural dislike of the man. He was a bit of a toad, which made sure no one would get close enough to see through his disguise. He hung around outside just long enough to make sure he had plenty of eyewitnesses to say that Algy had shown up for work. Then he ground out his cigarette and shoved through the doors into the lobby of the Stoblensky Arms Corporation. It was obvious the Stoblenskys didn't spend their money on their employees. The lobby was clad in a dingy faux marble that showed every scratch and chip and every one of the potted plants was plastic. Even the guard uniforms looked cheap. The only thing that didn't look like they'd been made in some foreign sweatshop were the guns the guards wore on their hips. The owners might be skinflints, but their business was designing weapons, and they didn't stint on the armaments the guards carried. The guards looked like they knew how to use them, too. No rent-a-cops here. Despite the risk, Virgil took his time crossing the lobby. Algernon never went anywhere in a hurry. He moved with the inexorable pace of a rash, the sort that could only be endured until it went away. A group of women in off-the-rack business suits scattered as they caught sight of him, but one, distracted by reading something on her phone, did not see him coming. Virgil sensed a bit of anticipation from the guards. They were taking bets on how long it would take for Al to get slapped. Virgil could not afford to do anything that might break character, so he moved to stand right behind the woman. "'Did you think about my offer?' he whispered, running a hand slowly down her back. She jerked away from him, dropping her purse. "'Back off, unless you want your family to get hit with another lawsuit!' She snatched her purse from the floor and stormed toward the elevators. He gave her retreating back an oily smile. Oh, yes, and that worked out so well for the last lady. What was her name? Her shoulders stiffened as she entered the elevator. She jabbed at a button and turned a molten glare on him. Sandra. Her name was Sandra. Virgil smirked at the closing elevator doors, taking a quick read on the thoughts of everyone watching. His careful study of Al's speech patterns and mannerisms had paid off, aided in part by the human mind's tendency to fill in the blanks. People see what they expect to see. The woman was so busy fuming she never noticed that Al was a bit taller today, and the guards were still arguing over their bet. Apparently a put-down was worth less money than a slap. Virgil breathed a sigh of relief and hit the up button for the elevator. His next move was the riskiest of the entire mission. There had been no way to hack into the network and take over the surveillance systems from the outside. Algernon might not look like much, but the sleazy systems administrator knew his business. He'd set up what was known as an air gap, completely cutting off the company's network from the rest of the world. And that was why Virgil was here. 
Agents from the Army's Tactical Paranormal Unit got loaned out like this on occasion when a normal FBI or CIA agent couldn't do the job. Virgil more often than most, since he had a knack for infiltration. Still, even with all his talents, it was no easy task. He got on the elevator and made a point of keeping his head down, as if reading something on his phone. He didn't allow the cameras a clear view of his face. A bald cap, some makeup, stolen clothes, and a bit of telepathic mojo was enough to convince the casual observer. Security cameras, however, did not possess minds that could be fooled. He'd have to leave fixing that problem to his partner. He looked at his watch, and a small indicator light on its face blinked twice. The paranormal half of this little team was ready to go. He could already feel the chill on his wrist as the ghost pulled in a bit more energy from the air around her. The elevator pinged as they arrived, but he held the door for a moment and scanned the hall with his talents, searching for the presence of other minds. He sensed at least five people on this floor, but none were in the immediate vicinity. He stepped out and made a left, heading down the hall to the office at the far end. Even though there was no one to see him, Virgil continued to walk at Algy's agonizingly slow pace. An agent never knew when someone was going to pop a head out of a door or turn a corner. It was nerve-wracking, but it did give him time to take a good look at the surroundings. Here was where all the money went. Alabaster light fixtures cast a soft glow over hardwood paneling, and the carpet in the hall was so deep it completely muffled his footsteps. Under other circumstances, he might have appreciated the quality of the setting, but all it meant to him now was that he would not be able to hear anyone coming up behind him. He kept scanning the area with his talents, and by the time he finally got to Algy's office, his heart was racing. He quickly pulled out the ID card he'd stolen from the thoroughly drugged Al that morning and waved it past the security panel to the right of the door. The light shifted from red to green, and the door swung open. He didn't let the breath out he'd been holding until the door shut safely behind him. The lights came up automatically, revealing a large, posh leather swivel chair behind a mahogany desk, and rows of top-shelf liquor lined a bar set into the wall on one side. The rest of the walls were taken up by paintings— Virgil compared it to Algernon's apartment. Obviously, someone with good taste had decorated Algy's office for him. He sat down at the desk, took off his watch, and turned a dial that wrapped around the edge of the clock face. Evie, activate. The digital clock was replaced by a gray screen and the words EVI, ectoplasmic voice interface, Mark 7, appeared in tiny white letters. The metal of the watch body went ice cold as the ghost stored inside became fully active and drew in enough energy to interact with the electronics. The voice that came out of the watch was decidedly feminine. Hello, agent. What is our status? We're in. Are you ready to hack this security system from the inside out? Remember, we need a total data dump without triggering any alarms. I acquired some of the passcodes, but I can't be sure I got them all. Understood. 
preparing to transfer. A vague, shadowy figure emerged from the watch and expanded, hovering near the laptop. For a brief moment, Virgil's senses picked up the memory of a classy-looking brunette before the ghost disappeared into the screen. Enter the passcodes, please. The voice still came out of the watch. On the screen, a small alert box announced the new Bluetooth connection was set up. You work fast, Evie. He typed in the passwords he'd lifted from Al's mind. Then all he could do was wait, his fingers drumming impatiently on the desk, while a dozen scripts ran. The email software came up on screen. Algie's inbox was filled with flagged alerts, each one color-coded depending on the type of request moving through the office system. Al had his fingers in everything. Orders for office supplies, customer complaints, accounting invoices, and yes, HR requests. He also had a folder that held a copy of each employee's email box, including those of his relatives. Spying on your own family, Virgil said, shaking his head in mock disapproval. You really are a douchebag, Algernon. Lucky for me. A message popped up to let him know the file transfers were in progress. All of the data would get stored in the watch, along with the ghost, doing away with the need for a more obvious portable drive. If he got caught, it was unlikely anyone would think to check his watch. How are we doing, Evie? Processing. He grumbled at that, blowing out his cheeks in frustration. There wasn't much he could do to help. He was no hacker. His only job was to walk the ghost in and get her back out again, since she couldn't hold cohesion without a power source. Knowing that didn't make the waiting any easier. To kill some time, he started rifling through the rest of the office, although he didn't expect to find much. Algernon was a digital-or-nothing kind of guy. He was inspecting the selection of liquors when a knock at the door stopped him in his tracks. A woman's voice, hesitant and nervous, came through the door. Mr. Stoblensky? Algernon? I've been thinking about your offer to get together. Virgil's eyebrows rose up so high they nearly disappeared beneath the bald cap. It was the woman he'd groped in the lobby. What the hell does she want? He frowned in concentration and stretched his senses out to take a quick read of her surface thoughts. Rage, fear, disgust, nerves. Oh, God, what if this doesn't work? He muttered a curse. The woman, Catherine, had worked herself up into doing something drastic, and he was pretty sure she wouldn't take go away for an answer. Guess I'm going to find out how good my full sensory illusions are. He triggered the screensaver on the laptop and whispered, Evie, run silent. One slow, deep breath later, he had calmed his thoughts and focused them on making Catherine see what he wanted her to see. Then he raised his voice in Algernon's oily tones. I told you, honey bridges, all roads leave to my office eventually. Catherine walked in a little unsteady as her heels sunk into the thick rug. Her shoulders were hunched, and she clutched a large purse to her chest. "'You wanted to see me, Mr. Stoblensky?' She shut the door behind her, triggered the lock, and then the whole meek act disappeared. 
Before Virgil could reply, she reached into her purse, pulling out a gun that looked like it was straight off the set of Buck Rogers, and aimed it at his head. Well, here I am, she said, and we're going to have a nice long talk. Virgil took a quick, desperate look around the room for some way out of this mess. He'd thought up plans for dealing with security guards, bought a disgruntled employee. The only thing he could think of was to stay in character and stall for time. Whoa, take it easy, honey. He gave her a weak laugh and held up his hands. I was only joking with you, right? Why don't you put that down and we'll discuss it over a drink? He started to reach for one of the liquor bottles, but stopped as the gun made a threatening whine, like a jet turbine spooling up. You know what this gun can do, her brows knit together in a scowl. So shut up and listen, you little weasel. I know you're going to fire me as soon as you finish sucking what's left of my company dry. I've got nothing to lose. The sound from the gun went up in a pitch, and a little indicator light on the barrel glowed blue. Got the picture? Give me what I want, and you won't have to witness a live fire test up close. Virgil had no idea what she wanted, and he sure as hell didn't want to see what the space gun would do to him. He sank back into his seat and acted terrified, quivering in the vain hope that she'd take pity on him. Look, you'll have to help me out here. I'd give you what you want, but I don't know what that is. Liar, she snarled, taking another step closer. I want the acquisition's documents from when you bought my uncle's company. The real ones, with all the bribes you paid to get the merger approved. And I want to know every senator you bought, every judge you paid off. I'm going to expose the whole dirty underbelly of Stoblensky arms. What is it about guns that bring out the bad movie cliches, he wondered. The gun was less than a foot from his face now. Not the best time to be critiquing her line delivery, but at least she was close enough for him to do something about the gun. He wasn't part of a tactical unit for nothing. He exploded into action, pushing her hand to one side and twisting the gun around, disarming her in one smooth motion. A step to the side and a pivot later, he was behind her with one arm pinning her against him and a hand pressed over her mouth. He dropped Algy's speech patterns and growled, Quiet. Not a word. I'm not here to hurt you, but you picked a bad time. Ow! She was biting his hand. He strangled back another yelp. Would you stop it, lady? I'm on your side. The watch on the desk bleeped, and the ghost's voice came out, we have a problem, agent. No kidding, you're supposed to run silent. Catherine stumbled through his fingers. Agent? You with the FBI? Yes, now would you quit biting me? As soon as her jaws unclenched, he let her go and sat on the edge of the desk. He kept the gun just in case. And it was a good thing he did because as soon as she stepped away, she pulled another small pistol out of her purse and pointed it at him. Prove it, she said. What the, oh, for crying out loud. How many guns do you have in there, he said, pointing the space gun back at her. Prove what? That you're from the FBI and not just some other company, out to steal a few secrets. She backed out of his reach and took up a shooter's stance. I know how the feds work. They would have come in with warrants and cleaned the place out. 
Only if they had probable cause, and someone has to get that for them. Her eyes narrowed. And you expect me to believe that? He could think of only one way to convince her. Virgil glanced over his shoulder at the computer screen. Evie, respond. Have you found anything yet? Oh, my, yes. The Stoblenskys have been very naughty boys. Anything to connect them with the shipment that ended up in those militants' hands? Possibly. The data will require further analysis, but there are several crates full of prototypes from Devon armaments that appear to have gone missing. Catherine's face went pale. That was my company, Devon Arms. They sold our guns to insurgents? Killed 29 soldiers in Iraq, Virgil said. The Stoblensis claim the merchandise was stolen from a warehouse. We have reason to believe otherwise, but no proof yet. Her expression turned hard, and they'll bury the evidence just like everything else with bribes and threats. She lowered the pistol and put it back in her purse. Is there anything I can do to help? Because if you're about to put their balls in a bear trap, I want in on it. Virgil let out an amused snort. Hell hath no fury. You don't know what all they've done, she walked over and showed him how to shut off the space gun. That lady I mentioned in the lobby, Sandra, Algernon harassed her every day, but by the time she filed a lawsuit, the Stoblenskys had already paid off the lawyers and the judge, and then they found evidence that she was embezzling from the company. They ruined her made her serve time, and then found ways to ruin all her close family members over the next few months. No one has had the guts to stand up to them since then for any reason. Except for you, Virgil said, giving the gun a wry look. What is that thing, anyway? Portable sonic immobilizer, she said, like a handheld version of one of those sonic cannons they use on ships to repel pirates. Non-lethal, but effective designed it myself. Evie's voice cut in. Agent, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but we still have a problem. How big a problem? 277.6 pounds of a problem. The real Algernon Stoblensky emailed his father a few moments ago to tell him that he would be into work shortly. Perhaps you should have doubled the dose of the sedative, considering his size. Son of a bitch, Virgil said, pushing off from the desk. He'll be here any minute. Catherine, do you still want to help? Absolutely. Good. Find me a way out that isn't the front door. She nodded. That's easy. The Stoblenskys have a private elevator just down the hall. Takes you straight to their personal motor pool or to the helipad on the roof. That'll do, he said. Do I need a key? Just his ID card, which I see you have. Can I do anything else? Yeah, check to see if the hall is clear. He waited until Catherine's back was turned to say, Evie, eject. Yes, agent. The ghost floated out of the screen as a glowing orb of light and settled into his watch. He slipped it back on his wrist and shut down the laptop. All clear? Catherine gave him the thumbs up. This is the most fun I've had in months. Trigger happy and an adrenaline junkie, he said. You are in the wrong line of work, lady. She flashed him a grin and headed out into the hall. 
Virgil followed close on her heels, his senses stretched out to pick up on any other minds in the area. They seemed to all be clustered behind one set of double doors, and a low murmur of voices came through it. One voice raised up above the others. "'Where the hell is Al? Well, tell him to get off his lazy ass and get in here. That boy can't be one of mine, I swear. If his mother was still alive, I'd slap her.' Virgil raised an eyebrow and whispered, "'Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it?' Catherine grimaced. "'Mr. Stoblensky makes his son look like a true gentleman.' They hurried past the doors and turned a corner that ended in a small alcove with a fancy old-fashioned glass and brass paneled elevator gate. They both stopped at the same time, and Virgil held out his hand. Thankfully, she shook it instead of biting. "'Thanks for your help, Catherine. Keep your head down and don't do anything crazy while I'm gone. Leave the heroics to the professionals.' The corner of her mouth quirked up in a half-smile. I'll try to stay out of trouble. No promises, though. Virgil laughed and waved the stolen ID badge at a small screen set into the wall. The doors chimed as they opened. The real Algernon was inside the elevator, flanked by two guards. It wasn't time to warn Catherine. He grabbed her in a similar one-armed hold as before, fired up the sonic gun and pointed it at Al's nose. Out of the elevator! Now! Al shuffled a sidelong past them, his eyes wide in disbelief at the sight of his double. What the hell is going on here? No questions, Virgil growled. Move. The guard followed Algie out, their eyes glued on Virgil and their hands near their weapons. Virgil backed toward the elevator, holding Catherine in front of him. Algie's dad rounded the corner, his expression black as a thundercloud. If you ever make me wait like this again, boy, I'll take strips out of your hide. He looked at Virgil and back to Al. Then he barked at the guards. What are you waiting for? Shoot through her. Virgil shot first. The sonic pistol made a sound like God's own revolver, a blast that sent the Stoblenskys reeling and set Virgil's ears to ringing. He shoved Catherine away from him and hit the button to close the doors. There was no point in letting them think she was involved. He'd tried to push her out of the line of fire, but Catherine, bless her vindictive little soul, had other ideas. She not only managed to knock over both guards with an exaggerated stumble, but also kneed Papa Stablinsky in the groin as they all fell. The last thing Virgil saw as the door shut was her stepping on Al's hand as they all struggled to get back to their feet. He laughed and shook his head, trying in vain to stop his ears from ringing. Evie, can you run ahead and start up the car for me? I can do better than that. An orb shot out of his watch and disappeared into the control panel of the elevator. The lights dimmed as she drew in energy, then came back up once she was gone. As Virgil got off the elevator, a gray sedan slewed to a screeching halt a few feet in front of him. It was one of those new steer-by-wire luxury cars. Almost everything in it was run by computer. Evie's voice came from the radio. Get in agent. He opened the passenger door and dove in, just as another pair of guards pelted out of a nearby stairwell. The car sped off before he was all the way in, bullets smacking into the trunk with a loud patang, patang, patang. Evie slalomed between pillars and parked cars, and it was all Virgil could do to keep from being thrown out. Somehow he managed to drag himself the rest of the way inside and get the door shut.
He twisted around in his seat to see where the pursuit was. Two cars coming up fast on us, Evie. Hang on, agent. The engine growled as she upped the throttle and a little light that said sport mode turned on in the dashboard display. They caught air as they hit the speed bump at the exit to the garage and landed with a bang and squeal of tires as Evie threw the car into a left-hand slide. Two brown sedans followed close behind, although they didn't make the turn as easily. More bullets shattered the rear windshield as they darted out into traffic. Please keep your head down, agent. I need to see behind us. If you bleed on my upholstery, I will never forgive you. Very funny. He stretched out his senses, picking up on all the minds around him. It wasn't easy with Evie juking left and right through traffic and bullets whistling past him, but he managed it. He clenched his jaws with the effort, sweat beating up on his brow. Then he reached out with his telepathy, and for one brief moment, everyone driving behind them got confused about which way was left and which was right. Cars turned into each other with a resounding crash. The two sedans following them were lost in the tangle of crumpled bumpers, jackknife trailers, and angry drivers. Evie sped away and dove onto a side street. After a few miles of random turns to make sure they weren't being followed, she pulled into an empty alley and parked. The engine shut off and made ticking noises as it cooled, and the two of them, man and ghost, took a long moment to pull themselves together. Evie tentatively broke the silence. That was not one of our better exits, Agent. Virgil broke into helpless laughter and started peeling off his disguise. I don't know any mission you can walk away from is a good one. Do you think Catherine will be okay? He tore off the bald cap and shook out his sun-streaked hair. Algernon's clothes came off next, revealing his own shirt and jeans beneath the air bladders he'd used to make himself look heavier. I'd be more worried about the Stoblenskys, he said. She's a holy terror. I liked her. Yeah, I did too. He let the air out of the bladders and rolled them along with Al's clothes into a small bundle. The best thing we can do for her is make sure this data gets into the right hands, along with our reports. Speaking of which, you are going to take responsibility for that wreck back there, right? I was busy driving. Without a license. I'm a better driver than you. The ghost floated out of the dash and settled back into his watch. Don't worry about Catherine, he said. We'll make sure the Stoblenskys go down. Virgil strolled out of the alley and joined in the flow of pedestrians. All it took was a touch of tell empathy, and no one paid them any special attention. In a way, it was almost like they were two ghosts, moving through the world unseen. He shoved his hands into his pockets and made his way back to the safe house to report to HQ. And that has been Ghost Protocol by Angie Capozello, good friend and excellent author. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you're a published author and you'd like to be featured on Dead to Rights, email me at carrotpublishing at rogers.com and mention Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'll be happy to hear from you and we're now booking interviews to be aired in 2019. 
You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. On Twitter, we're listed as at deadtorightspod. Don't hesitate to reach out to us anytime. You can find me, Donna Carrick, at donnacarrick.com or on Facebook or under Donna Carrick, Carrick Publishing. My Twitter handle here is at Donna underscore Carrick or at Carrick Pub. My better half, Alec Carrick, is at alexcarrick.com or on Facebook. You can tweet with him at alex underscore Carrick. Our Dead to Rights theme song and all story scoring music is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick. You can tweet with Ted at Ted Carrick or follow his YouTube channel at Ted Carrick Music or find him at www.tedcarrickmusic.com. Be sure to tune in next week when we'll bring you an interview with Rachel Sparks. And uh, she's with Spark Press, so it'll be fun to have Rachel on. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.